We look tonight as we continue this series at Joel chapter 1, verses 5 to 20. For the sake of understanding tonight, we'll begin our reading in verse 1 of this chapter. and Read verses 1 through the end, though our focus will begin in verse 5. So hear now the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All of the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, And cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes. Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down. Because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed. Because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The sins reading of the Word of God. Let's ask His blessing now upon our study in a word of prayer. Lord, we come to you tonight to study a text which feels a bit bit strange for those of us who have not experienced something like uh, a locust plague, and yet we come in expectation that uh, this word is still a powerful and enduring word which speaks its message to us tonight. So we ask for your spirit 
that we might be enabled by your gracious hand to rightly handle and divide this word, that we might understand it and believe it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we last opened the book of Joel, we began by studying the first four verses of the book in order to get a handle on the prophecy as a whole before plunging into the oracles which the book contains. And what we discovered at that time, if you can think back a couple of weeks, was that this was a book written by a man named Joel, of whom very little uh, is known. However, like all prophets, he dedicated himself to the prophetic task of opening a window on to the future by, number one, identifying and rebuking covenant-breaking, And number two, by announcing restoration for those who would repent. And we also saw that as far as the specific context of Joel's prophetic ministry goes, it's difficult to pin down when it took place, but we do know that the Lord spoke to Judah through the prophet Joel at a time when God's people were reeling from the effects of of a devastating locust plague. Particularly, it was a locust plague which had come upon them on account of their sins. And today, as we press on in chapter 1, we consider what might be called the first full oracle in this book. And what we find in Joel 1 is what I'm calling tonight uh, a list of reasons to cry. As Judah was rocked by covenant judgment from the hand of the Lord, there were literal reasons to cry as Joel exhorts them to weep over what has just happened to them. And there were reasons to cry out to the Lord as Joel exhorts them to humble themselves before Yahweh. And and these two sorts of crying, if we can call them that, are bound together by a common Thread which pervades the book as a whole. Both the crying and the crying out, if Judah were to obey the call to engage in these works, would function as signs of repentance. And that idea of repentance is one of the central themes of this book in its entirety. Now, at the outset, we must reckon with the fact that Joel is somewhat unique among the prophets, and the fact that he doesn't really tell us what Judah is supposed to repent over. Uh, some, Some of the prophets are very specific in the transgressions and the iniquities which they were charging against the people. But in Joel, the problem is often stated in general terms that defy easy explanations. But I want to suggest to you that this is in many ways a positive rather than a negative because it allows us to apply the teaching of this book more readily because even if we don't share the particular sins of ancient Judah, we all have sins in need of repentance of some sort. So with those things in mind, we can summarize our text tonight by saying that Joel chapter 1 verses 5 to 20 teaches us that God's judgments are meant to lead His people to repentance. God's judgments are meant to lead His people to repentance. And we'll explore that teaching 
this evening as we wrestle with the specifics of of this text under four headings. Through the prophet Joel, the Lord makes the following appeals to His people. Number one, weep for your pleasure has ceased. That's verses 5 to 7. Number two, lament for worship has halted. That's verses 8 to 10. Number three, be ashamed for the harvest has failed. That's verses 11 to 12. And then finally, repent for the day of the Lord is near. That's verses 13 to 20. So weep for your pleasure has ceased. Lament for worship has halted. Be ashamed for the harvest has failed and repent. For the day of the Lord is near. And let's consider those four appeals and then we'll conclude tonight with some application for today. In the first place, the Lord says to Judah through Joel, Weep, for your pleasure has ceased. This is the appeal made in verses 5 to 7 of our text. Beginning in verse 5 we read, Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. With these words the prophet begins a series of addresses to various groups within Judah. And the first group to come within his aim is uh, the drunkards. Uh, The drunkards who are so inebriated and so dead to the world that they need to be told to wake up. Take stock of your situation. Recognize what's happening right in front of your face. And they need to be roused from their drunken stupor so that they can see that their days of pleasure will soon be over. The stock of the wine and sweet wine, the sweet wine here probably juice that's not fully fermented. So the wine that's available today and the wine that might have been available tomorrow, all of it dwindles to nothing such that the drink of the drunkard is cut off from his mouth. Now, is the idea here that the drunkard is to weep and wail because they won't be able to get drunk anymore? Probably not. Uh, That would be a somewhat strange direction. The idea is that when the drunkard is roused from his drunkenness, he will be able to properly assess his situation and he will realize that the reason his wine has been depleted is that he is under the judgment of of the Lord. He's under the judgment of the, the Lord. And that judgment, as has already been noted, had come up in the form of a locust horde. We saw that last time in verse 4. And Joel repeats this idea in verse 6, saying, For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. You see here the swarm is compared to two different entities which are capable of working destruction. On the one hand, the locusts are like an army that has come up to conquer. And on the other hand, they are like lions whose unstoppable mouths devour whatever they please. And how would a drunkard, being aroused to this reality, communicate to him that he was under the judgment of the Lord? Well, drunkard or not, the Israelite was supposed to know the covenant in which they were a participant. They were supposed to know the covenant scriptures. And and the book of Deuteronomy makes really plain that there were curses for covenant breaking and unfaithfulness. And we find a number of relevant examples in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Let me just give you a sampling of these 
as they inform our text. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 38. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 39. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 32. The cricket shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. These were covenant curses which were to come upon God's nation if they were to be unfaithful to Him. And therefore a drunkard whose wine had been cut off due to pestilence was to weep and wail for the pleasure he had had been cut short due to sin and unfaithfulness. The swarm was a sign of God's displeasure and it left unavoidable evidence that this was so. As verse 7 vividly describes for us, It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Other prophets, like Micah, for example, use the the, the imagery of the fruitful vine and the the prospering, uh, growing fig tree as images of prosperity. I think, for example, of Micah chapter 4, verse 4, where Israel is pictured as resting under the vine and fig tree. But in Joel, that prosperity is broken as the vine and the fig tree are gnawed down to nothing. And first of all, in a literal sense, by the locust worm, but also that in some sense, that decimated vine and fig tree eaten up by the locust become a picture of Judah, who is often spoken of as a vine or a fig tree in the, in the Old Testament. Those The decimated vegetation becomes a picture of Judah under the judgment of God. God's vine has withered under His hand. So with the plague sweeping through the land, Joel provides the first reason to cry as he admonishes the drunkard to weep, for his pleasure has ceased. And then in the second place, the Lord says to Judah through Joel, Lament, for worship has halted. This is the peal of verses 8 to 10. Uh, now the drunkards are left behind as the prophet focuses upon the priests and upon the, the destruction which this plague brought to their realm, saying, Lament, like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The locust had been indiscriminate in their eating. You you were out of luck whether you wanted wine to drink or whether you wanted wine to offer to the Lord. Neither group was privileged, regardless of how they wanted to use these things. As verse 10 expresses that the fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. For the priest, these were the tools of the trade. The, The Priests were reliant upon these crops to offer up their grain offerings and their drink offerings. And, and if the, the grain, the wine, and the oil perished, so too did the grain offerings and the drink offerings which were to accompany the morning and evening sacrifices offered day by day. Every day, the priests were to come before the Lord with wine, pour it out before Him, and they were to bring a grain offering made of flour mixed with oil. Without these three ingredients... Their worship was necessarily deficient. And it's over that state of affairs that the priests were to lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth of the bridegroom 
of her youth. Now to our ears, that sounds a little bit like a contradiction. How could a virgin lament for her bridegroom? Well, in this culture and in this day, the the betrothal process prior to marriage was taken much more seriously uh, than engagement is today. That the marriage had not been consummated yet, but uh, the the papers had been drawn up, so to speak, and uh, certain bridal prices has already been paid. And so it was appropriate for a couple to be to speak of one another as husband and wife in an anticipatory way. Therefore, the the imagery here is of a bride who loses her bridegroom in this anticipatory stage. The groom dies before the virgin bride is able to enter that joyous season of matrimony for which she is long. And so uh, such a person would be expected to to don uh, something like goat's hair sackcloth and mourn in in a... public and obvious way. In a similar way, the priests had waited for the harvest. As the bride waits for her bridegroom, the priests wait for the harvest that their worship offerings might continue to be supplied year after year, but all was destroyed as the crops failed before they could be taken in. So there will be no more grain offerings. There will be, at this point in time, no more drink offerings in the house of the Lord. And so like a virgin bride who had lost her Bridegroom, the priests were to don the apparel of mourning and lament before the Lord. So as the locusts eat up the grapes, the grain and the olives alike, Joel provides a second reason to cry as he admonishes the priests to lament for their worship has halted. Then in the third place, the Lord says to Judah through Joel, Be ashamed. For the harvest has failed. And this is the appeal of verses 11 to 12. Now, the previous appeals have been addressed to drunkards and to priests, but now they're directed primarily at the farmers themselves. We read in verse 11, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. This third category of Judean residents faces the same difficulty faced by all the other categories, the the locusts have eaten up the land. However, there's a unique burden borne by these individuals, not not only do they sustain themselves upon these uh, products of the land, but because they're farmers, this is also their livelihood. And so as as these crops fail, so too does their livelihoods. And when rent comes due, the tillers of the soil, the vine dressers, will have nothing to offer in payment. This point seems to be accentuated in verse 12 as a, as a wider range of produce is highlighted in the casualty report than earlier in this oracle. The, the vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up and gladness dries up from the children of man. So not only have the food crops been taken away, but with them the gladness of the children of man. The farmer, like the drunkard and the priest before him, is to be ashamed of his sin and to wail, knowing that the unfaithful conduct of the nation has brought this state of affairs about. And this then is the third reason given by the prophet to cry, the harvest has failed and the hearts of men have failed with it. So so from verses 5 to 12 in our text, Joel appeals to these drunkards, priests, and farmers. And he gives each of them a reason to cry. 
Because of the, the devastation of the locust, the, the drunkard's pleasure ceases, the priest's worship halts, the farmer's harvest fails. But as we come to verse 13, understand that these calls to tearful mourning were not an end in themselves. Instead, they were intended to rouse all of the inhabitants of Judah, moving them from a recognition of their physical need to the recognition of their spiritual need for repentance. At this juncture, Joel now turns back to the priests as those who will evidently lead the nation in their acts of repentance. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. So while the priests were no doubt complicit in the sin of the people, they were to lead the way back to the Lord. The normal services would have to wait, as there were no grain offerings and drink offerings to offer anyways. However, they were to press on in their temple service, leading the people in a service of lament and mourning before the altar. This service of lament and mourning is further explained in verse 14, where we might call it a staccato list of commands is quickly rattled off to the priests. Here we read, Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. See, the priests were to gather God's people, the roused drunkards, the mourning fathers, excuse me, the mourning farmers, the the elders, and really, as we see here, all the inhabitants of the land. The nation was to fast, foregoing whatever little provision they still had left, and they were to assemble on a day set apart, a solemn assembly set apart for the purpose of crying out to the Lord. They were to in all sincerity, cry to the Lord in prayer. They were to recognize their utter dependence upon Him. They were to make their request known. They were to ask for forgiveness. They were to ask for mercy. They were to ask for favor. And they were to do all of this in the hopes that the Lord might hear them, answer them, and relent. And as we find when we come to verse 15, they were to do this because the judgment that they were undergoing was connected to the day of the Lord. Here's what Joel says. Alas for the day! For the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. In the Bible, the day of the Lord is, in the final estimation, the day of judgment and salvation, when the Lord finally gives to each man what he is due. It's a day when the Lord punishes unrepentant evildoer, and it's something that really occurs at the end of time. We've talked about that some as we studied 1 Thessalonians. Yet as we consider the fullness of the Bible's teaching on the day of the Lord, we find that temporary judgments were also, in a lesser anticipatory sense, days of the Lord, because they provided pictures of that final Day of the Lord. So, so in this respect, Judah's travails and temporary judgments could be spoken of as days of the Lord. Therefore, the locust plague which had come upon the land was a day of the Lord, which was to bring to mind the day of the Lord that comes as destruction from the Almighty. 
The fact that destruction had come from the Almighty was evidenced in the holistic nature of the suffering that they were to experience. Not only has their food been cut off, but joy and gladness. In the house of God, we're told in so many ways that the festal song of praise had given way to something like a funeral dirge as the people mourned and lamented before the altar. And beginning in verse 17, Joel demonstrates the way in which the day of the Lord judgment ultimately touched every aspect of life within the land. It affected both priest and prophet. It affected both man and beast. Once again, Joel paints a picture of desolation in verse 17. The the, the seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. What is the result? How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To borrow a a, a phrase from Paul, all creation was groaning under the weight of sin as the day of the Lord bared down upon it. But there's a little bit of good news here because as we come to the end of this passage, there are signs at least of repentance, seeds of repentance we might call them. The, 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 the priests have received their marching orders to lead the people in a penitential cry before the Lord. But the first to cry out to the Lord is Joel the prophet. And ironically, the beasts of the field. So, so we read in verse 19 and 20, To you, first tense, okay, this is, uh, this is Joel speaking now. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. There's some debate uh, as to whether or not the descriptions here are uh, a new metaphor for the locust plague, or whether this was actually an outbreak of fire which occurred uh, in uh, sort of the, the stubble which was left over from the locust plague. And it's somewhat hard to say. It, it seems like it may well be another image that Joel is using. But uh, regardless, the, 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 the locust plague, the fire here in our text is, is seen licking up every tree and stream in its sight. And, and amid that blaze, it's Joel who calls to the Lord. And alongside him, We read that the the beasts of the field pant for the Lord. They are the first to reckon with the announcement of the coming day of the Lord. Allowing the judgments of God to lead them into a state of humble dependence and repentance. In this way, as we come to the close of chapter 1, Joel provides us with a model of the cry which he commends to the people. To you... Oh Lord, I call. So in review, this chapter directly addresses Judah in the aftermath of a locust plague. Recognizing that the plague is a covenant curse doled out on account of covenant breaking, the prophet gives the people reasons to cry. Crying tears for their sad estate and crying out to the Lord in repentance. This calls address the drunkards, the priests, And the farmers, three classes of people within Judah who would have been particularly affected 
by uh, the widespread destruction of vegetation. And among these three groups, it was the priests who were to lead the others to the Lord by calling a fast and a solemn assembly at the temple that they might cry to the Lord with one voice, recognizing that the disaster they were experiencing was in anticipation of the coming day of the Lord. But brothers and sisters, we have not suffered a recent locust plague. So uh, we rightly ask how we might go about uh, applying this text and wrestling with its implications in our own life. Well, let's just say right up front that we do have to be careful about the way that we apply prophetic texts like this. We've already noted both this week and the last time that we studied this text that the punishment which came upon Judah as a nation came upon them as a nation in covenant with the Lord which had agreed to obey the Lord knowing that there were blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, which, they would, uh, which would affect the entire nation, regardless of whichever direction they went. However, as the church of Jesus Christ, we are no longer under the Mosaic Old Covenant, neither are we part of a theocratic nation bound to all the, the judicial stipulations in the book of Deuteronomy, lest we perish together. That's just not our state in the New Covenant uh, context. So it would be a sloppy hermeneutic and way of interpreting this text, uh, which simply ignored the covenantal context of the prophets, assuming that everything bad that happens to us or to the United States, however you want to look at it, is a sign of covenant judgment. It just doesn't work that way. We don't have a divine Uh, inspired scripture to interpret all of what goes on around us like Israel did. And outside the context of the Mosaic theocratic nation of Israel, we can't always draw a direct line between what's in the newspaper and some particular identifiable national sin. Okay? That's how we have to be careful. However, we can, I believe begin to apply this text in a responsible way when we realize two things. First of all, all calamity has its source in sin. All calamity has its source in sin, ultimately. And though the administrations differ, we, like the people of Israel in the days uh, in which Joel was written, are within the covenant of grace. We are in covenant with the Lord just as they were. And so we can begin, I think, to put these principles to the, uh, to the help the rubber meet the road uh, when we think of this in terms of, for example, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 19. Here's what the question asks. What is the misery of that estate whereunto man fell? Here's the answer. All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under His wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. That is, of course, is the state 
and to, to which we all belong without the Redeemer Jesus Christ. And therefore we must recognize that even if we can't draw without uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if we can't draw a straight line between certain national sins and particular national calamities as Israel could, we all live in a world which has been touched by the curse of God upon sin. And all the miseries of this life are the fruit of sin, even if we can't relate our miseries to identifiable sins in a mechanical way. As we stated earlier, all judgment, generally speaking, is meant to lead us to repentance. So, with, with that context in mind, knowing that we are here in the United States today, living uh, in Tennessee, we're, we're not in a holy nation like Israel, all of our calamities can't be interpreted for us by inspired prophets, and so we can't necessarily say with the same degree of confidence why everything is happening. We can, I believe, recognizing that we all face calamity and misery, which is a result of sin. We should accept this fact and allow it to stir us up in the first place to a sense of humble dependence upon the Lord. When we face the miseries of this life, when we face disaster, destruction, calamity, and grief, it ought to lead us to a sense of humble dependence upon the Lord. That's what the people in this text are being called to. And James 5, 7-8 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so as we suffer and wait for the Lord, amid physical suffering, amid national tragedies, amid untold miseries of every kind, we must recognize our utter dependence upon the Lord, who alone can deliver us from the miseries which we face. When the Lord gives us reasons to cry, then we ought to cry out to Him, asking Him to save, to redeem and to, live, to deliver. So the miseries in this life stir us up to humble dependence in the Lord. In the second place, they ought to stir us up to a repentant spirit. We've already discussed the fact that we can't assume that every single time we suffer, we can trace it directly to a particular sin. That's the lesson, or at least one of the lessons of the book of Job. But... The individuals, notice this, the individuals addressed in this first chapter of Joel couldn't necessarily trace their suffering to sins of their own either. Their suffering as the nation of God was corporate. It was, nation, it was suffering which came upon the people for the sins of the people as a whole. So when difficulty comes upon us, even if we can't figure out exactly why it might have done so, we ought to at least search our hearts to see if there be in us any persistent sins which need to be dealt with, for which the Lord might be disciplining us. Let us make the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 139 our own prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And, and so when trouble comes upon us, like trouble came upon the people of Judah at the time of this plague, it ought to drive us to the Lord, asking that the Lord would grant us repentance wherever repentance needs 
to be granted. As, as the Confession teaches us in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15, paragraph 5, men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. I have to think that when they came up with that line, you know, they winked. That was a good one. Um, but it's true. Uh, when, when calamity strikes, let us all, as the people of God, exhibit a repentant spirit as we endeavor to repent of our particular sins particularly. We, we, again, we, like Israel, are under the same covenant of grace, even if the administration differs. And so we ought to repent with them, trusting that the Lord, who showed grace to them in so many ways, will show grace to us as well. And that brings us to our third application here. As we think upon the miseries of this life, the calamities which we face, it ought to lead us to a humble spirit of dependence upon the Lord. It ought to lead us to a repentant spirit. And in the last place, it ought to stir up in us a desire for restoration. Joel 1 paints a picture of a groaning creation which encompasses all the inhabitants of Judah as well as the beasts of the field and the land itself. And likewise, we know that the creation continues to groan today. Romans 8.22 declares that we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So whether we're living through a locust plague or not, the creation is groaning and it stands in need of restoration. And therefore, the miseries of this life ought to stir up in us a desire for the restoration of all things. As the Lord brings His redemptive work to completion. And where does this restoration, where does the restoration of this created order come from? Paul tells us as he goes on in Romans 8.22. Just after 8.22. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait, eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope... We were saved. The restoration of this broken world will coincide with the open display of our adoption as sons in the Lord. On the day when our bodies are redeemed. At the coming of the Lord. On the day of the Lord. And as Paul makes clear, your participation in this restoration will depend on whether or not you are indeed adopted as sons, regardless of whether you're man or woman. As those who have faith in the Son, who died to redeem those who trust in Him out of the estate of sin and misery. So as we are led by the destruction in this world around us to desire restoration, we must rest in Christ knowing that He will restore this broken world and bring the redemption of His people to completion at the same time. So, as we come to the end of Joel 1, let us recall that the judgments of the Lord are meant to lead His people to repentance. That was the case for Judah. As the people tried to navigate the aftermath of the locust plague. But the miseries of this life ought to lead us to repentance as well. Stirring within us a humble dependence upon the Lord, a repentant spirit, and a desire restoration. And so we pray that the Lord would have mercy upon us and that He would enable us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance as we await our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. We look forward to it 
Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us in this task. Lord,